sing, Lord, as we worship this morning at the truth that was put on the, the screen before us. Truth right out of the scriptures. That there is a king of glory. And he did humble himself. And he became a babe in a manger, Lord, brought into this world just like you and I. And Lord, we now marvel that the fact that he lived this sinless life so he could die for us, but it all started in that manger. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ to come born for us. Lord, a blessing, Lord, to know that, to believe that. Lord, we pray this morning you would help us think deeply about these truths. Help us understand how personal this is for each one who has believed unto salvation. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries, Lord, around the world. We're so glad to be in partnership with them. They, too, are preaching this message. They're proclaiming this truth to the world, to the villages, to the cities that they are in, Lord, that desperately need to hear the message of Jesus. Strengthen them today, Lord. May our giving and our prayer, Lord, be an encouragement to them. Lord, we think of those who cannot be here, watching even online because of sicknesses or illnesses or just not able to come anymore. Strengthen them today, Lord. Cause them to know we love them, Lord. And Father, we think of those in this room who are hearing this, Lord, who are, who are suffering in some way, Lord, that maybe no one else knows about. Maybe for those who have lost a loved one this year. Maybe for those who are struggling in a personal situation, Lord, we, we pray today that this babe in this manger, the truth that, that lies within that incarnation would encourage them and cause them to rejoice. Lord, now stir our hearts as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 says, For today, today in the city of David, there was born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, that's the central theme of this great text, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. Many of us read this on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve to our family, but that pinnacle verse right there in 11 reminds us that the, the promised seed, the Davidic line, all that God had promised in the Old Testament was there, and I love that little phrase right in the middle of it, born for you. What a statement. What a great reminder. See, this with the most reverence and delicate beauty of articulation, when you look at this verse, born for you, God, God thought of us, planned this for us. And so the incarnation becomes so special to us. Wouldn't you love to have been there when this angel announced this? This great statement the fulfillment of the long-awaited seed, all done for sinners. It's marvelous just to think, as we were singing and listening to the different teams sing, the Savior of the world is here. I mean, that was what happened. That's what this passage is about. Truth now streams through human history as you think about it. He's entered the world. He's entered our realm, and now forever, in all of human history, we sing and proclaim that the God of heaven, the God of creation, has come to save his people from his sins. It's such a stunning 
proclamation. Stunning proclamation. 4,000 years earlier in the garden, Adam and Eve rejected God. But right there, right there on the scene, there is our God, our Savior, promising, promising to undo that. And here, 4,000 years later, this great statement comes to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15 and crush the head of the serpent. There's born today a Savior. Well, I want to break this passage up in three lots. It's a, it's a large passage, but we'll move through it. It's a narrative. And at first, I want to look at what's going on in earth at this time. We want to look at what's going on on the earth. And then we want to examine that great statement, verses 6 and 7, that the angels make. And then we want to examine the heavenly activity that takes place, and that is marvelous. So three thoughts this morning. Number one, a world shrouded in darkness and a womb for a tabernacle of light. A world shrouded in darkness and a womb for a tabernacle of light. You see in these first five verses, there's a decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus. He has absolute control now, and he demands that people come together. And so it's important to understand those little phrase, in those days. In those days. What's going on here? Well, Caesar Augustus is the first Roman Empire. His real name was Cassius Octavius. And he was a nephew of the great Julius Caesar. And the name Augustus was, was a title. It was his title. A title he claimed. And Caesar was just given out of cur- courtesy and a, more of an adopted name. Over time, the title Augustus was dropped and he was simply called Caesar. But during the beginning of his time of becoming emperor, he rejected the title of several other titles given to him. One was dictator. Listen to this. He said it suggested too much of a temporary office, so he didn't want that name. The next, he was to be called king, but he didn't believe that was significant enough to represent his position. Working with the Roman Senate, the name Augusta begins to be derived from a root word that that turns back to a religious endorsement and then begins to take Caesar towards the understanding and recognition that he's God, that he is a God, a deity. And this is what he was after. Shortly after that, the Roman Empire begins. See, there's a lot happening in these days. There's a powerful government arising. Now people are... Are, are under the hand of heavy government. The leaders before him were all called commanders, but now, now Augustus, Caesar Augustus, is now the first emperor. And the Roman Republic is passing away, and now you have an empire, a Roman empire. And Caesar Augustus believes himself to be a god sitting on his throne. See, in those days... Things are not good. The doors of the temple, Janus, that was a man, a god that they worshipped, they were closed, and, and there was a reason for that. They'd been closed for about a decade. They would remain closed for about 30 years. The temple of Janus, was, it stood in the center of the Roman Forum. 
And this little small temple had this statue of a god named Janus. He was a four-faced god who faced all the boundaries and believed to have the beginnings of life. The Romans believed that he was a god of passage. He was able to hold together and dictate geography and time. Janus was the first name that they would call upon as they worshipped. They believed they had to pray through his gates in order to even be heard by the other gods. And so they believed that he was considered the doorkeeper to heaven and hell. His face looked over the four corners of the world and looked at his ability. They believed he had the ability to collect all people from all walks of life. And so when his doors of his temple were opened, it mean there was no war. And for many years, the Roman Republic was at war. In those days, in those days of Joseph and Mary, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the empire was enjoying peace. And the gates were closed at that time. That mean there was no war. And that would sound good. You would think that would be a good thing. But think about this. Here comes a man unchallenged in power, no ability to appeal. Caesar Augustus is issuing decrees that affect everyone. And when you realize that there was no one who could challenge his dominion, because now he had taken on deity and he is the ruler of a Roman empire through a, through a tremendously satanic deception. Those days were dark. They were dark. In those days, there was a little place far from the center of this Roman empire. It was a little town, small and obscure, insignificant just a Roman outpost there. It was in a place called Galilee in a little pagan city called Nazareth. With this great emperor ro ruling and dictating everyone's life, there's these two individuals. They seem very insignificant, don't they, to this world? A man and a woman. Only two individuals amidst a sea of people. They're on the move. That's what we find in this passage. They're, they're on the move in verses 1 through 5. They're headed to a little town called Bethlehem. See, in those days, there was a decree by Caesar Augustus that it reached all the way to Nazareth. And Joseph, under the submission of the governing authorities, no matter how evil it was, had no choice but to go and be registered here we find Joseph and Mary with Davidic royal blood pumping through their veins. And nobody knows they exist. They can't send a form in. They certainly can't do a Zoom meeting. And she's in her last trimester. It's 50 plus miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this little couple seemingly traveling alone from the scripture here, they have the savior of the world in Mary's womb. You can imagine the road. This is 2,000 years ago, dusty and dry and soldiers and thieves and all kinds of things along this road. 
And these two seemingly very lonely individuals are making their way, obeying this order from Caesar Augustus, and they're by themselves. The text does not show us that there's seemingly any family with them. Possibly they're rejected by family and friends. They seem to be alone. But I thought about this this week. Here they are making their way 50, 60 miles, working their way south to Bethlehem. And Mary is the tabernacle of God. God has tabernacled in her womb. And nobody seems to know. Caesar's ruling and dictating. The strong arm of the government has reached out in so many directions. And here's Mary and Joseph with Jesus tabernacled in her womb. It's interesting as you look at this, Joseph seems to be very convinced that his wife is carrying the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, the angel came and told him, and he did exactly as the angel told him. He became convinced that his one passion is to guard this woman and guard this, this child, even at cost of his own pleasure. He would not even know her till the child was born. You see, at first glance in those days, it seems that Caesar Augustus and his satanic role of, of, of his long arms stretching across the known world seems to have control of everything, and he even, even has control of Joseph and Mary. But not so fast, Caesar Augustus. God's at work here. See, there's a promise and a prophecy given by God 650 years before this that this couple was going to make their way to Bethlehem, not under Caesar's orders. Turn with me to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, if that will help you a little bit. This is a great passage of Scripture. Let me set the scene for you. Micah is ministering during the time of Jeremiah. The invasion of Babylon has devastated Jerusalem. Now the third wave, the third attack has come. King Zedekiah has been set up as a puppet king for Babylon there. And in his poor wisdom and poor counsel, he rejects Jeremiah's counsel and he rebels against Babylon. And the nation is crushed in 586 B.C. We pick that up here and now Micah gives this tremendous prophecy. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster yourself in troops, daughters of troops, that have laid seized against us with a rod that they might smite the judge of Israel on the cheek, and that is King Zedekiah. His children were murdered in his presence. It's bad. <laughs> it's dark. Three waves have gone. Daniel and history friends are already gone. Many people have died. There's a remnant taken off to Babylon. The poor are left in Israel. And then out of this darkness and out of this devastation comes this prophecy. And see, this is why Caesar does not have control of these two. God does. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
too little to be among the clans of Judah. They were not important, right? Why wasn't the child born in Jerusalem? Why wasn't the child born in a palace? Oh, too little to be claimed to be among the great, right? Look at this. From you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. Beautiful prophecy. Birth and future. All in that one line, isn't there? His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Oh, it gives, it gives Jesus Christ the true deity that he has. Huh. Caesar had a fictitious deity. Made up in his mind. He died in AD 17. AD 14, excuse me. But not Jesus. See, Jesus is from eternity past. Jesus is God and has ruled forever in heaven. Look at verse 3. Therefore, he will give them up until the time. And when she, has, she who is in labor has born a child. This is Luke 2. A Savior is born, right? Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, telescopic, looking to the future with this great one born in a manger is going to do someday. And he will arise and shepherd his flocks and in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great. We heard that last week in the sermon, right? Song, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And to the ends of the earth and one will be our peace. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. So as you turn back to Luke chapter 2, it is so important to remind ourselves that we look at Micah 5, we begin to realize that Joseph and Mary are not the insignificant ones. They're not just this nobodies on their way to Bethlehem. In fact, as we read that passage, we realize it's the kings and the rulers of the world who are completely insignificant compared to the sovereignty of God. God uses wicked men to bring about his purposes even. And the two make them way, their way there. I, I love the connection between Micah 5 and Luke 2.14. This one will bring peace. This is a dark time. War had quieted down in the Roman rule, but, but darkness was as dark as it ever had been. There seemed to be little hope. And here comes Joseph and Mary. The Son of God tabernacled in her womb, guarded with the most earnest desires of her husband Joseph. And the most powerful man in the world in those days has no control of them. God is going to bring about his purpose. Every step, every circumstance they went through, there with the eternal Son of God in the womb of Mary, God was watching over them. Second thought this morning. The darkness of depravity was pierced by great light and grace and truth. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Well, notice in verse 6, there's really no suggested timeline here. How long were they in Bethlehem before Jesus was born? Where are the families of Joseph and Mary who they themselves had to register as well? Why weren't they with them? Why are they alone? Well, the narrative doesn't give us all these answers, but it's quite possibly that no one believed them. 
We've talked about this before. Could you imagine that, that sit-down with mom and dad of what's taken place? Mom, dad, the angel came to us and we're pregnant. But it's from the Holy Spirit. See, see, it is quite possible as we look at this narrative that they're alone because they're now outcast in some way. Notice the phrase there in verse 6, that the days were completed for her to give birth. As much as the conception was absolutely miraculous, this pregnancy and this birth were very natural. And this is important to understand. Hebrews 5, chapter, chapter 5, 8 and 9 tell us that although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to the, all those who obey him the source of eternal life. And this is what I would say about that. There were no short, shortcuts for Christ, the Christ child. He obeyed in every aspect of human life, including birth and death. Including birth and death. He is like us. However, in verse 7, it tells us his natural birth found them in a place lacking hospitality, to say the least. It doubtlessly wasn't the most sanitized place in the world because there was no room for them in the inn. There's only two Greek words in the New Testament used that we would use in the English that we would translate in. The first word is a word that talks about four walls, an enclosure where, where someone might meet. It's used of the upper room where Jesus meets the night before his death. The second word is what we have here in verse 7. It's a word that describes a hotel type of environment or atmosphere it, with all of its usual hospitalities. Jesus uses this word about the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the Messiah child was not born in either of those words or those type of establishments. History teaches us that there were shelters along the way. Many of them were on the side of inns. Some of them were built in caves out of the side of a hill. And most all of these enclosures would have a small amount of hay and, and certainly there would be water. We also know that Jewish hospitality was known particularly in these early days, to be some of the best. Hotel chains, even in modern Israel, had the most difficult time getting going until tourism took off because family stayed with family. And yet, you look at this scene, as you look back at 6 and 7 here, this narrative seems to describe Joseph and Mary alone in this manger scene. She has a very natural childbirth, like all other natural childbirth, it waits for no one, doesn't it? You can see that. It's beginning to happen, and she has this child. She's possibly in some outside animal enclosure. Now the Son of God is entering the world there. I thought it was amazing to think that Joseph and Mary traveled, and in their travel, they passed palaces. They passed homes of the religious elite in their great courtyards. They doubtlessly passed inns that maybe even housed their family members. But here in verse 7, look at this. The king of glory is in a manger. <laughs> the king of creation is there. And this is what Paul 
spoke so clearly about. Pastor Gary read this text this morning. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus veiled his deity. And he didn't hang on to what he rightly deserved. He was true deity, wasn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and yet he veils that. And he humbles himself, and he took on the likeness of man. Think about that. The creator of man takes on the likeness of man with a goal to die, with a goal to die on the cross. And all of that, all of that begins in this animal shelter. See, there's no one who can say Jesus doesn't understand. He's fully man. His life begins in a trough. It's an amazing thing. You see, you can come to him. He, can, he understands. He's been tempted and tested in all ways. He knows what suffering's like. He's not brought up with a, with a golden spoon in his mouth. He is, he is like a reed that's easily bent. He's looked upon, and no one sees him as great. Isaiah 53. And yet, listen to this, he is the only way to God. And we praise him for that. Look again at verse 7 with me and see the isolation of this couple. As you study this syntactically, the structure of the verse alludes to the fact that there's no one there to help. Listen, some of these phrases, she gave birth, she wrapped him. In a Jewish birthing place, there would have been women, a tremendous amount of women. And doubtlessly, Mary had seen children birth, maybe even helped in the process. But on this day, remember we're talking about in this day, on this day, hopefully with the help of Joseph, poor guy, she goes through everything that it takes to bring a child into the world with no help from friends or family. I thought, was she sad her mom and sisters weren't there? See, this is a time where women should be surrounded by the most tender care, right? But Mary seems to be alone. I can't imagine the emotions that Mary must have had and what she went through. And yet there in her arms, moments after his birth, is the king of glory. Jesus later speaks of women who give birth. John chapter 16, 21, I've often thought, was he thinking about his mother when he gave this? When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. That's what happened in this text. The hour came. Pain and everything else came with it. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been, has been born into the world. I've often thought, as Jesus preached that in John 16, was he thinking of Mary in his own birth? One last thought in verse 7. Look back there with me. It says, gave birth to her firstborn son. Well, certainly there's an understanding that he is going to be the eldest child. Matthew tells us that Joseph and Mary had many children. But the New Testament teaches that firstborn does not just simply mean first time, but it means first place, first order, first importance, first in power and authority. That's how the term is used. 
In fact, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is called the firstborn of creation. He's called the firstborn of the dead. And he's called the firstborn of many brethren. I mean, he has led us, his brethren, to salvation. It's quite a statement. And yet, there in the manger lays the Son of God, the only begotten of God, the unique one who was with God, who is God. In this little town called Bethlehem, he's entered human history. See, God's not bound by time. He's not restricted. He's not looking about, is Scott going to go over so we'd be late at Cracker Barrel? He is not held by time, right? And yet now our Lord Jesus, some of the things you have to think about when he steps into humanity is he takes on time. He will live 33 years on this earth and die. He was subject to time. And yet he's God. I went back and read Isaac Williams' The Nativity. He wrote it in, or was published in 1844. Very hard read um, uh, language-wise. Um, but quite a commentary on Luke 2 as you read through it. One little phrase I brought out, he said this, and the nativity says, The unfathomable depths of the divine counsels were moved. The fountains of the great deep were broken up. The healing of the nation was issuing forth. But nothing was seen on the surface of human society but this slight ripple of the water. See, the world then and the world today has no idea what entered history at that moment. I mean, think about that. The healing of the nations is in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the problems we see in this world, all those who will head to hell because of the rejection of Jesus Christ, this is the one who can save them. And nobody knows about it. He's there with his earthly father and mother, it's just a ripple. Third thought this morning. The centuries of anticipation explodes as truth is proclaimed from angelic beings. What lacked an earthly response, nobody's there, right? Is overwhelmingly made up by this heavenly presence. This is just a glorious passage. I mean, just think what's pinned up in these angels. They watch Satan leave. They watch him desire the throne of God. He, he, he jealously wanted what only God could have, and he's thrown out of heaven, and his tail takes a third of the stars, a third of the angels with him. But these elect angels, they are there. They see Jesus, probably pre-incarnate Christ, react immediately to the fall of Adam and Eve, and he's in the garden looking for them. They're hiding. He's looking for them. He finds them, listen to this, brothers and sisters, he promises them, I'll crush the head of the serpent. So these angels for this 4,000 years have been loading up for this pronouncement. I think there was this tremendous anticipation as they wondered and marveled at the writings of the Old Testament, how this was all going to come down. But it comes to some, in this text here, some un kind of unresponsive at first shepherds. 
that soon will become worshipers. Look at verse 8 with me and following. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. The angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. And now this angel of the Lord, probably, I would, I would imagine, these are my thoughts here, probably Gabriel, he's been on the, he's been on the run here meeting with Mary and, and Joseph and, and Zechariah and Elizabeth and so forth. And so possibly Gabriel here, he's come from the direct presence of God and so he's, he's radiating this amazing glory on these dark hills of Bethlehem. These are probably, this is my belief again, I, I, I would suppose these to be probably temple shepherds. They worked for the temple system. These are probably temple flocks that were about ready to die or soon would die. And these lowly men, they're, they're so low that history tells us that a shepherd was not allowed to testify in court because they were not to be trusted. And these men are out on these dusty, windswept hills and they're the first to receive the greatest message man could ever hear. In essence, this angel is telling them that the glory of the Lord, you're going to see the glory of God in the face of a child, is what he's telling them. In all reality, I think the angels, or this angel of the Lord is telling them that someday you're, you're out of a job. Because the final lamb's here. We're going to have to re-educate you, <laughs> send you into another way of life because the final lamb is here. I think it's so important to recognize that the angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds, and, and as we look at them, they're poor, they're downcast, they're heavy-laden kind of people, they're Matthew type 11 type of people. They're, they have an overbearing yoke of oppression from the religious and from the Roman government, and they need their sins forgiven. And when we study these shepherds in great detail, we realize that outwardly they look like all of us inwardly. They're spiritually bankrupt. Why them? Why not the great high priest who was ruling at the time? Why not the religious elite? See, God, God knows the hearts of all men. Jesus in John chapter 2 says he was not willing to give himself to them because he knew the hearts of all men. He knew who would believe in him and who would not. And so they, this angel comes reflecting the Shekinah glory of God and the shepherds just have this great gripping of fear. I think in Angel 101 school, they're taught to immediately say, don't be afraid. It's the first thing out of their mouths, right? Look at verse 10 with me. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I'm bringing good news of great joy, which will be for all the peoples. I can only imagine that, that all of heaven's been waiting for this great news. See, these angels knew the promise of the seed was going to come and be a blessing to all people. When you study the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12 of Genesis, this is not just for you. This is he, he will, this seed will be a blessing to all people. 
See, they knew Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. It was too small a thing for Christ to come for the 12 tribes of Israel. See, they knew God had a grander plan, didn't they? They longed to look into the grace that was written about the coming child. And they knew that he was going to gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so this, this angel, angel of the Lord, he's shining from the reflection of being in God's presence, is there to tell about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it is truly great news. He did not come as a spirit. He did not come as a myth or anything like that. He came as a man representing you and I so he could be our mediator. And what great news that is because we are dead people without him. See, some of you believe this message. You're here because you believe the message of Jesus Christ. Some of you don't believe yet. Some of you have been hanging around church and hanging around Christmas. And you don't believe yet. But I I want you to hear this message, both saved and unsaved. Hear the message of the angel. See the world lacking in joy. See the world that had no good news. See the world gripped with fear. See the world beaten into submission. See the world with great sadness, hatred, and desperate without hope. And then the Bible says in verse 11, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. For you. See, the Savior is coming into the world. And he's not just coming because he's going to rule right now. He must die. And most people miss him because they don't need a Savior. If your Jesus is so great, can he heal me of my afflictions? And if he doesn't heal me right now, I don't want him. Will he feed me? Will he give me money? See, they missed the whole point. Verse 11 says that he was born for you a Savior. Many of you have him as your Savior. Some of you don't. And if you don't bend your knee to the Savior, you will die and go to hell. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. This is not a Savior we play around with for four weeks of the year. He's here to rescue. He's here to deliver. That's what he came. And he's delivering you not from Caesar. He's delivering you from your sin. That's what he does. Nobody else can do that. So friend, be reminded that you need a Messiah. You need a, a sent one. You need the Lord of glory. No one else could do this. And let me ask one more question. Do you rejoice, as we sang today, do you rejoice that God sent his son? Or is it just Christmas time? See, there's a big difference. See, Christians should rejoice because this Savior dealt with our sin. Let me look at these last few verses before we wind this up. Verse 12. This will be a sign to you, shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Well, this is just the kindness of God towards these shepherds. He's direct. He's telling them exactly what is going to happen. You will find 
How does he know that? He's not omniscient because God told them to tell him that. They're out in the fields. They're maybe miles away from this birthing place and this manger scene. And God says, look, you will find, not maybe, not stumble onto it, but you will find. I love that terminology. Listen, friend, God sent his son to die. And he can open your heart and you will find him. Because <laughs> he'll find you. Bend your knee to him. Don't harden your heart against the one who can save you. Oh, look at verse 13. Boom! Suddenly, <laughs> there's this appearing of the angels, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. As I sat and thought about this this week, it, well, where, did they gradually come in? No, the word is suddenly. It's, it's a multitude. We, we don't quite know the number of it, but it seems to be many, many. And with a blink of an eye, whoo, here comes this massive choir of angels. All coming from the presence of God. I don't think they trickled in. You know, one running in at the end. You know, it's like Star Trek coming out of, you know, light speed. Just whoo, it's right there. And one angel, the angel of the Lord coming from the glory of God, must have rolled their socks up and down a couple of times. But now this host, this heavenly host, ones from heaven, from, from the presence of God, are there in this, in this darkened field now brilliantly lit because of the glory of God. And this isn't some kind of show. This isn't some kind of theater. There's nobody there but poor, maybe uneducated Worthless to society, shepherds. And God puts on the whole thing. Isn't it amazing? See, let me say this again. These angels are marveling that God's going to rescue these humans. And think about this a little farther. They have to marvel that this king of glory, their creator who created them, has now stepped out of heaven, entered the womb of a human woman by the Holy Spirit, protected from her sin nature, and now is going to birth, come through this woman, come into this world, and they are there to announce it. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's got to be of God. Look at verse 14 with me. They begin saying this, this choir begins to speak in unison. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. A message so great that it reaches the highest heaven to the lowest parts of the earth. That's how great that message was. It comes from heaven itself, from the throne of God to the lowest part on the earth. Dirty, out of the way, living in darkness, shepherds on a hill somewhere. You don't, you don't think Jesus is for you. Oh my goodness. That's either just sinful pride or just a lack, a lack of concern for your own soul. This message that they pronounce here grants eternal peace. 
It speaks of eternal peace far from and amazingly different than the temporary peace people were seeking and even today try to seek. It's a message that takes sin-stained, polluted people and makes them pleasing to God. See, I think that grips me more than anything. I deserve the wages of sin, and that wages is what? It is death. And yet, God, through his infinite wisdom, planned a salvation from the beginning of time, promises it in the garden, promises it all through these 4,000 years of Old Testament time, and produces the Son who can save Scott and make him pleasing to the Father. Do you see yourself that way? Look, it's not being prideful to say, oh God, thank you for making me pleasing to you. It's actually very humbling Maybe you need to say that to him today. Maybe it's your pride that's causing you to stumble and not be a worshiper. Maybe you're just a mumbler at church and you don't sing these great truths because you haven't been gripped by one who made you pleasing to God. So that's what changes us, isn't it? Causes us to be worshipers. Notice in verse 15, when the angels had gone, man, lights out, right? They're gone from them. And where'd they go? Into heaven. That's where angels work and live and reside at the beckoning of God. And so they deliver this message. And I don't know if they're high-fiving on the way out, but I can imagine that, right? Oh, Father, that was phenomenal to tell those humans what you were doing. But they seem to exit here quickly and, and they're gone. And the shepherds began to say to one another, well, I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> That's not what he said. Let's go straight to Bethlehem. What else would you do, <laughs> right? This, the king of glory has said that these angels are saying the king of, the king of glory is over in that town where we can... We can know, we can maybe see the faint lights of candles and windows. He's over there and he's in that manger. Let's go straight there and see him. Let's not hesitate. Oh, people hesitate all the time when they hear the message of Jesus. Well, Scott, you just don't know what my life is like. I don't care what your life is like. You need Jesus. <laughs> Every one of our lives are different. Don't wait. Run to him. Believer. Believer, are you getting slack? When you hear Christ, do you run to him? Do you open your own Bible to see his glory, to believe in him, to reassure yourself through the truth of God's word that he is who he said he is and he did what he said he did? Do you preach the gospel to yourself immediately? Or do you wait for me to do that? See, I love this. These people have seen Jesus. They've heard about him, right? They want to go see him. See, let's see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I'm telling you right now, if you're lost in this room, the Lord's making known to you who Jesus is. Are you going to run to him? Or are you going to think you're good enough? Boy, that'll be a tough day. When you stand before Jesus someday, and I think I'm okay. I, don't, I didn't need your sacrifice. I'll run to him. See, look what's happening. Faith is reacting. 
See, faith's reacting. Now, they haven't seen Jesus. They've just been told about him. Now, spectacular as it was, and I'm no archangel here preaching, but you're hearing the greatest message in the world now. Do, do you have faith, and will your faith react? See, that's what James talked about in James. He says, too many Christians say they have faith, but they have no reaction. They have no deeds to, to live for Christ. I mean, ask people if they're going to go to hell. What, me? No, but I know somebody. <laughs> see, see, faith reacts. Faith says, I want to see more. I want to hear more. I want to be discipled. I want to know this God who has saved me. Look at verse 16. So they hurried and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the babe as he laid in the manger. See, faith now turns to sight. There he is. Promise confirmed. It's the Messiah. It's the Son of God. And he's on earth and he's in a manger. Just like the angel said. See, faith leads to the glorious unveiling of the promises of God. And that's why we pray for faith. God, give our children faith. Give our loved ones faith. Give them, grant them faith. They don't, they don't know how to faith their way to you. They're lost. They're dark in their sins. Give them faith. So they'll come and run and see you. Look at verse 17 and 18. When they had seen this, look at this. They made known the statements which had been told to them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Well, now they have a new job. They're evangelists. We got to tell you what happened out there. Christians are afraid to tell people what happened to them. I mean, we live in this world where there's such a rejection of the true supernatural that God does. Even, quote, Christian theologians deny supernatural work. Your salvation was supernatural, and you won't even tell your family about it. I mean, it's supernatural. And they can't hold this in. They've got to tell these people. Of course, Mary and Joseph are going... Yeah, the same guy talked to us. But they're marveling, right? Everybody's marveling at this. All, all of these people are collaborating. They're all coming together, and this story is being told, and they're being told by these dirty, rejected socialites the story of the great coming of Jesus. And it's all true. Everything the angel said, there they come. Mary's there. There's Joseph. And there's the babe. He's in the manger, just like the angel of the Lord said. Look at verse 19. Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. I'm not a woman. Praise the Lord. I'm so grateful for you ladies. God gave you guys great roles. You, you honor the Lord in it. But I thought about her. I thought, man, she's probably having normal thoughts going through her mind and heart. She's just birthed a child. Her husband has right been in the middle of it. This couple that has remained pure towards this, to this point. And now she's deeply grieved, 
just gripped with the significance of everything that Gabriel's told her and her husband's told her. And now these, 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 these shepherds show up and, and they, they're telling them of this marvelous story. And it's reiterating the truth she heard nine months ago. And they're being reminded that this is, this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited one. This is the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. They're being reminded of all that. She's pondering and pondering and pondering. And I thought maybe Mary was the first one to write, what child is this? Maybe she journaled down and said, what child is this? Lord, you have laid to rest in my lap sleeping. Who angels come and greet with sweet anthems while shepherds watch their flocks. Oh God, what child is this? Is this Christ the King? Is this the one who shepherds guard and angels sing? Oh, Lord, we should praise him because you gave me a babe who is the king of glory. What a beautiful thought that this woman must have. Finally, in verse 20, the shepherds went back. (laughs) What a great walk this must have been. Glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it was told them. That's a remarkable statement of the inspiration of God's word. That word came from directly from God to the angel to them, and it was exactly what it said. Our Bibles are, are just the same. And so these lowly, insignificant shepherds returned worshipers. <laughs> so fun to see people get saved. They go from these people who really don't care too much about Christianity. It's they kind of, Christians kind of bother them. To be in worshipers. Men I watch today standing in our choir who God saved since I've been here and watch God miraculously change lives. Watching them praise God. Watching them become worshipers. Well, in closing... Are you a seasonal worshiper? God asked this question at Christmas. There's a lot of Christians out there, right? Christmas and Easter. Are you a seasonal worshiper? And let me go a little bit farther. Are you a seasons of life worshiper? This is probably the harder question. Well, when things get bad. For years, us pastors, we watch young people. They get out of high school. They go off to college. They get married. They disappear for a while. And they show up when they have children because they don't want their kids to go to hell. See, seasonal worshipers. Oh, my marriage is falling apart. Maybe I better go to church. Seasonal worshiper. My finances are terrible. I, I really need God to give me something. Seasonal worshiper. See, this is a beautiful season, Christmas. We love it, don't we? But we're not going to worship any different in January, February in March because Jesus has captured us. And a true worshiper has radically changed by the grace of God. We're still sinners. We still have our struggles. But we don't come and go. We keep running to our Savior because this day He came for us. Amen? Father, Thank you for letting us preach your truth. 
you've made us pleasing to yourself through your son. I don't know how you did that, Lord. How, how you came up with that before time. That you knew how to take wretched people, people sin, stain, polluted by the world and self and the ugliness that man has become and devised a plan to send your son through the seed of woman so that you would crush the head of Satan and save a people and be pleased with them. Amazing. Amazing. So Lord, I speak for many in this room and those watching. I say for myself and for them, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for your submission to the Father and stepping out of the glories of heaven to breathe the dust of the earth and becoming our representative, becoming our substitute and dying for us. And then beating death, beating sin, beating Satan and rising again and promising to do the same for us. We give you praise. May you be worshipped in every season of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.